One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. talked about long covid i think there's going to be long lockdown Four. my instinct is there will be a deal i think it will come late on after much political drama Three. the unemployment tsunami is now starting Two. to me at least the 2020s look set to be almost as disruptive and turbulent as the 2010s one we have lift off And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Sir Boris Johnson suffered a major backbench rebellion. And then, suddenly, the Pfizer vaccine's given the thumbs up by UK regulators. The Prime Minister got his much-criticised tiered lockdown through Parliament. But with more than 50 Tory MPs voting against, he was forced to rely on Labour abstaining, again, on an issue of vital national importance. The rebels lost the vote, but with 99% of English residents in Tier 2 or 3, not much different from national lockdown, their criticisms and anger really hit home. Alison, we're delighted about the Pfizer vaccine approval, aren't we? A rare and much-needed blast of good news, but full rollout of this could take months, and meanwhile the economic carnage continues. And you remain upset about the whole premise of the government's case for lockdown. Well, let's not forget, Liam, before we get into all the important stuff of the week, that the real talking point was whether a scotch egg is a substantial meal or not. Or two scotch eggs and a pickle. (laughs) Two scotch (laughs) eggs and a pickle. Imagine all the poor publicans across the country, all these people running the old boozers who've got to suddenly start serving up trout mernier to to be able to open their doors. But, But yes, absolutely, the Pfizer vaccine. UK's become the first country in the world to approve a COVID vaccine. Mass immunisation on the cards, although, as you say, it'll be starting with care homes. And I gave a bit of a cheer, actually, because we've been following Robert and Josephine, haven't we? And the first thing I thought was maybe Robert will be able to see Josephine before Christmas and then we'll be doing all the over 80s, hospital workers and and so on. This is a really interesting thing, Liam, that because of Brexit, the UK can approve the vaccine faster because our body is now allowed to do it by itself. The EU, of course, naturally is going to take much longer. So we will be the first country to vaccinate. And we've talked about it before on Planet Normal. I'm not an uncritical supporter of the vaccination. But for me, the main thing is to restore confidence to all the people who've been absolutely terrified by the propaganda which we've we've railed against this week. And something that you you may have noticed, Halligan, that smoke coming from your co-pilot's ears was this propaganda ramped up to... Is that a permanent state of affairs? <laughs> I'm worried if smoke isn't coming from your ears. Hello? <laughs> Is anyone in? <laughs> This week, it was not just smoke, but flaming dragon breath coming from the Pearson Welsh dragon jaw. My absolute final tipping point, really, was there was an article in The Times by Michael Gove on Saturday, which you may have seen, and it 
contained a dire warning that every hospital in England would face being overwhelmed with COVID-19 cases if MPs were foolish enough to not back this new system of tiers, totally illogical and unfair system of tiers. And Mr Gove said every bed every ward full. Now, as as Planet Normal's hospital bed occupancy correspondent... Brackets, bedpan. <laughs> bedpan. <laughs> You're the Hattie Jakes of Fleet Street. <laughs> Can't I be the Amanda Barry? Wasn't she a rather more fetching nurse? <laughs> what he was saying in that article, this is really important, Liam, they're putting 55 million people into tiers two or three, many of them before the lockdown were in a lower tier. So how does that work? And it is, let's remind ourselves, costing 900 million quid a day while this malarkey goes on. And I know that's small change now from all the vast debts. But this extraordinary restraint on our liberty, which is predicted to continue until Easter, I am sort of boiling with this. And I think that We can go into some more of the detail that George has sent us later. But this Michael Gove, completely, utterly disingenuous use of data at best. And I suppose the thing that really made me most upset this week is this constant emotional blackmail. Save the NHS. If we don't do as we're told, if we're nasty, selfish people who try to get on with our lives, we won't save the NHS and people will lose their lives. Well, I think, Liam, it's high time the NHS, for which the British taxpayer pays 143 billion quid a year. Cha-ching. Proper money. Why are we saving them now, eight months after the start of the pandemic? High time the NHS started protecting us. Do you remember when we went into the November lockdown, the lockdown we've just come out of, sort Mm. of, there was the doom graph, the 4,000 deaths a day and similar tales that the NHS would be completely overwhelmed. I remember reading that Gove essay over the weekend and we we spoke on the phone, didn't we? Mm. So some of the numbers were just plain wrong. I mean, NHS England says that bed occupancy... It's just 88% at the moment across the whole service. That's compared to 95% this time last year when there was no COVID. And back in April, yes, we had the Nightingale hospitals that were built. They were barely used. I mean, like less than 1% of that capacity was used. Even in the April peak of this pandemic, the NHS was nowhere near being physically overwhelmed, as Michael Gove says it could now be. And the more you look into tier two and tier three in particular, the more the case falls apart if you are an objective person looking at the data that we have. And this is why there were so many Tory rebels, not just because their constituencies Mm. would be in tier Mm. three. Some of the rebels, their constituencies are in tier two because they're looking at the data. They're listening to people like Professor Tim Spector at King's College, who is saying definitively with data to prove it, official data to prove it, that this second wave actually peaked weeks ago Mm. as we started the November lockdown. And if you look at some of the places in England that are hardest hit by this lockdown, particularly in the Northwest, you know, cases in Manchester, which is still in tier three, of course, England's Mm. second city commercially, as is England's second city by population, Birmingham still in tier three, cases in Manchester have been falling, Alison, since late September. And across Lancashire, they've been falling since mid-October. 
And even though you, you, you have all this huge spending on furloughing and other business support that we've often talked about on Planet Normal, all funded by newly printed money by the Bank of England, by the way, the economic carnage of this lockdown is now coming through despite the ongoing business support measures. Look at what's just happened in the last few days. Arcadia, one of our biggest retail empires, from Dorothy Perkins yes, yeah. to Topshop, 13,000 jobs. Look at Debenhams closing its doors. These are really important retail jobs. These are often jobs, by the way, held by women, mm. women mm. who are earning in families that are quite close to the breadline. These are not glamorous jobs. These are workaday jobs by ordinary people who are, to use Theresa May's old phrase, just about managing. That's on top of lots of redundancies at Boots, at John Lewis, real thoroughbred brands. And all the jobs that we've lost in the aviation sector, arts, culture, events, the unemployment tsunami is now starting. And yet we're going to spend until Easter, at least vaccine or no vaccine, in these tier two, tier three restrictions, which are tantamount if you live in those regions, particularly tier three, to national lockdown. I think it was Professor Tim Spector. He's at King's, as you just mentioned, and he runs the Zoe Project, which is keeping an eye on these things. And Tim Spector has suggested that most areas of the country really should be in tier one with just sort of tighter measures in perhaps parts of the northwest and Hull and the pubs in all of Kent are closed, Liam, because there's a bit of a spike in the Medway area of Kent, which is 60 miles away from lots of people. So what I did this week is with the help of George, our marvellous source in the NHS, um, Velma, bless her. <gasps> Here she comes. Here She's she comes. She's got the specs. She's got the roll neck. I've been offered an orange roll neck by a oh, planet no. I, I have. I think. I think we're going to have to go visual. We are shaggy, sort of unwashed, unkempt, long sleeve green t shirt. He scoops. That won't take much, will it? With you, with you. <laughs> I'm wearing Sh- it already. <laughs> shaggy and unkempt. I think that's a perfect, <laughs> elegant description. So our anonymous source within the NHS, George, has been giving us these fantastic figures. And, and this week he, he came up with some particular pertinent facts. So what George told us is that in the southern region now, and that's the southeast, the southwest, London and East Anglia, COVID bed occupancy is only 8%. All right. So and in the north, it's 13%. But that's a big reduction on the 19% we saw a week ago. And something I tackled in my column this week, Liam, which I thought people should really know about now, is when they tell us this number of hospital admissions, say they say 1,640 new hospital admissions yesterday. No, that's absolutely not the case. Only 25% of that number will have arrived in hospital as a confirmed COVID case. Patients who come in with other conditions, maybe a broken leg or a stroke, they'll be tested. And if they test positive, they'll be added to the COVID admissions. But this is the real bombshell. This has come straight from George. Between 17 and 25% of all so-called COVID admissions, they get the virus while they are in hospital. And George said... Those percentages have been stable for the past three months. And this, Liam, is the NHS's dirty secret. 
that they are giving a huge number of patients who are coming in, fragile, vulnerable people, they're giving them COVID and they're calling them COVID admissions, which they absolutely are not. I must say for all the merits of the NHS, and there are many, it does have a reputation, doesn't it, over the years for dirty hospitals, for infections. We've had all kinds of issues about this over the years and if you compare it to say as you do in your column to Japanese hospitals which Mm. are much much cleaner there's at least on the surface from what we can see and talking to our sources there's much more cross-infection going on in NHS hospitals which simply must be mentioned and then must be tackled we can't shy away from this and it strikes me now that we're getting in a situation that because people don't believe that the NHS itself is under threat of being overwhelmed, and because there is so much concern about how these tiers are being implemented and regions can't move from a a more restrictive tier to a less restrictive tier if they see the rates of infections and COVID cases falling, I think the government's actually got a consent problem here. The government needs to be much, much more transparent about its thinking. Boris needs to get a much broader range of people around him advising him, Mm. not just pro-lockdown sage epidemiologists and others, but some epidemiologists, and there are many, who are more sceptical about lockdown. Economists, other kind of people who bring a broader perspective, because we've still got, even though it's great news about this vaccine and we need to talk about that, Mm. we've still got months and months and months of this during which the economic carnage will continue. And that economic carnage itself costs lives. Major economic nosedives, and we're in the middle of the biggest ones in 300 years, cost lives. Deaths of despair, that's what economists Mm. call them. When your business breaks up, also when the NHS is so focused on COVID that all the so much other non-COVID treatment goes by the wayside. And there were some really tremendous speeches made in the House of Commons um, earlier this week. The COVID recovery group, these are not a bunch of ideological headbangers, which is how they're presented by so many of our mainstream broadcasters. These come from right across the Tory party. It's everybody from, from Steve Baker and David Davis, who were, of course, ardent Brexiteers, all the way over to Damien Green, who was, you know, Theresa May's right-hand man, the sort of most one-nation Tory. He's basically a Lib Dem with a blue rosette, you know? And he yes. wouldn't mind me saying that, I'm sure. He's very much from that completely honourable and, and distinguished part of the party, that kind of Tory reform group. And this COVID recovery group, the, the speeches they made were really something. Charles Walker's speech. Listeners should get these speeches up on YouTube. The so Graham Brady's speech was a knockout, I thought. Really amazing, saying that you cannot take us for granted and it's much harder to take us for granted now in December with all the damage that there's been and all the damage mm-hmm. to come than it was back in March. You and I backed lockdown, didn't we? When Planet Normal began in April and May this year, we backed the lockdown. But as it's gone on, the weeks and months, the government has not taken the country with it. It hasn't shown evidence. It hasn't done any cost-benefit analysis of why the lockdown makes sense. It's barely acknowledged the downsides of lockdown. But allowing businesses to collapse because of a a lockdown that's too blunt and then offering the owner benefits or Mm. a a stint at a job centre. That's not okay. That's not okay. The economy needs to be centre stage now of this conversation. 
and I think the Prime Minister was forced to concede, and this has got to happen in the next few weeks, these regional tiers are going to become, in his words, Alison, more granular. They're going mm-hmm. to be more detail in terms of the localities which are in and out of the different tiers within the same counties because as you've indicated with Kent and it applies to many many other places across the UK just because you're in the same county you're often living in a completely different situation you can be in the middle of nowhere in a county with a big city and the whole county's locked down and that just makes no sense at all. There was a an extraordinary moment I don't know if you saw it when Graham Brady was giving his speech in the Commons and talking very eloquently about freedom, you know, that we absolutely had to every day examine the freedoms had been taken away from the British people. And I sometimes think the government doesn't really understand that every single day they should be justifying the fact that we aren't allowed to have our friends or family into our own homes, Liam. I mean, we shouldn't become blunted to the reality of that. And as Sir Graham was speaking... Boris and Michael Gove were just sitting along the front bench and they looked like two really sullen six-formers. Boris looked collapsed. I mean, he just looks like a a popped balloon of a grizzly bear, really. And they looked baleful. I thought Boris looked ill and they couldn't meet Graham Brady's eye. And I thought if Boris wasn't the Prime Minister, he would be giving that, wouldn't he? He'd be giving that speech. The liberty of the British people, they just think it can go on till Easter. Well, you know, it's always two more weeks. You know, I think one of my favourite stories of the week, which I really wanted to share with you because I knew you'd love it. So Wales, my own beloved Wales, has has gone even more mental if such a thing is possible. And <laughs> having having come out of their circuit break now, shh, having come, shh, 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 <laughs> Jones the steam, Jones the steam. So having come out of the circuit break, they're now introducing more restrictions. And the Welsh government is uh, banning alcohol from pubs because, as we know, pubs <laughs> do so well. But they're allowed to sell (laughs) non-alcoholic mulled wine. So that'll pull in the punters. And what's absolutely rather brilliant is 100 North Wales pubs have banned Mark Drakeford, the First Minister, from uh, entering their pubs. And let me just read you this. Oi, mate, you're barred. (laughs) Absolutely. Honestly, you're going to love this. In an open letter, they said all licensees have a legal duty under the Licensing Act to ensure that disorderly, argumentative, violent behaviour and antisocial behaviour does not occur on or around their premises and to prevent the occurrence of criminal offences. As a result of your behaviour on November the 30th, 2020 at the Senate Parliament, First Minister, your actions class as antisocial behaviour for the damage caused to our members' premises. Oh, my I mean, God. So they're absolutely now they're saying, uh, should you attempt to ignore this notice and enter any of the licensed premises listed with the assistance of the police will be sought, if necessary, to eject you <laughs> from the premises. We've got the local cops on side. They come in for the lock-in. <laughs> <laughs> Look, so we're laughing at that, aren't we? We're laughing oh. at that. No, listen, we're laughing at that. Oh, marvellous, you know, ha, ha, ha. But today, the Welsh government has made it clear that they will be introducing ID cards to show which of their people have had the vaccination. So we have seen this creeping authoritarianism and, uh, you know, we can laugh at Mark Drakeford being banned from North Wales pubs, but... This is now a straight power grab. This is really, Total power grab. And that's what I I wanted to ask you. 
Do you think, we're talking about that Michael Gove article, absolutely shameless misuse of data. Is there aim to herd the sheep into the pen for the vaccine? What's the end game here? Because they're not conceding, are they? Or conceding slightly on some of these points. But I'm asking you, Michael Gove, highly intelligent man, you'd think he would come up with an evidence-based policy, but he's absolutely ignoring all the stuff now, which is blatantly clear that the, the virus is retreating, cases are down by a third, and that was happening before lockdown began. What are they playing at, Liam? So on the vaccine, I mean, I have sympathy with people who are concerned that the vaccine is being rushed through too quickly. There have clearly been cases in the past where vaccines have gone wrong. However, in this case, I believe because of the importance of getting this vaccine Mm -hmm. and the resources thrown at this, I am not suspicious that it's being done quickly and that corners are being cut. I'm, I'm just not. I'm prepared to accept the vaccine as you are, uh, and I'm obviously prepared to have the vaccine as soon as I get an opportunity. Though I do agree with the way the government's proposing to roll out this vaccine with, you know, care workers and most vulnerable first, then NHS staff, all of that. Absolutely. If I'm the last person in the country that's off the vaccine, you know, as a a relatively healthy middle-aged bloke who's had the virus, Mm, then mm. that's completely fine. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves here in the sense that the government has to realise that the way to engender confidence in this vaccine, right, is not to force people, is not to belittle people, is not to treat them like agricultural animals, is not to frighten people. And I thought in Michael Gove's article, he was basically trying to frighten people. Hmm. And the British people are simply, they have too much wherewithal and too much pride and self-respect to be pushed around. They really don't like it. You know, we have a very long fuse. (laughs) But Mm. when we're riled, we are riled. And if the government keeps going down this authoritarian line, close to compulsory vaccination, then there will be a major backlash. And you will get very sensible people like you and me, hopefully, who are open-minded about this and willing to go along with it and willing to support it, who will be forced to say, actually, no, this is wrong. This is the problem. They're raising the stakes all the time. You know, we're 24 hours now after a vaccine has been approved and you have parts of the UK basically talking about compulsion, right, or getting very Mm. close Mm. to the idea of compulsion. You don't need a 100% vaccination rate to get herd immunity, whatever some of the mainstream broadcasters Mm. say. As, you know, they should do some research, frankly. You do need to get to a critical mass. I think we are well within the critical mass in terms of people who are prepared to have this vaccine, but don't push people too hard. The messaging has to be very, very cleverly done. Otherwise, you will get a major backlash. And what modicum of trust is left after this lockdown, after all the doom graphs, after all the exaggerations, after all the broken promises, that trust will disperse completely and then you're in real trouble. I did dig up this interesting fact. Did you know that in 1853, there was a law in England and Wales which required universal vaccination against smallpox and there were fines levied on people who didn't comply? Now, smallpox is one thing, Liam. I mean, you know, smallpox is a horrific 
a deadly disease to, you know, to people of all ages. I think anything that's mandatory, it just doesn't seem right to me. I don't think that's our tradition, and unless, obviously, you're up against something like smallpox. Do you want me to read you another, my favourite thing of the week as well? Yeah, go on. Okay, I'm just going to ask you to guess this now. So Yale University published a study on the accuracy of various institutions' COVID models. Liam Halligan, can you guess whose model had by far the highest median percent error? Oh, I can't think. (laughs) Imperial. (coughs) Sorry, got a cough, got a cough. My tea went down the wrong way. The Imperial model had larger errors, about five-fold higher than any other model. This appears to be largely driven by the tendency to overestimate mortality. Well, there we are, you see. I mean, this is what we've been we've been saying all along. The institution who's modelling more than any other has put us into lockdown, Absolutely. has driven the government's narrative. So Unbelievable. And this is a bit of an afterthought from this Yale University piece. It said that in March, Imperial produced a report on China's no new confirmed cases, supporting that, despite intelligence saying the exact opposite. And somebody has commented, seems like President Xi got his money's worth from China's best academic partner. Don't you think when we're through this, there are going to be huge questions about the influence that China had over the data. It begins as a love story. Couples who meet as young activists, bonded in a fight against injustice. We seem to have similar outlooks in life. He often made me feel very special. It felt like we were in love. I remember it being quite magical. As far as I was concerned, we had a future together. I fully did envisage my future with him. But then he starts acting strangely. Suddenly there were secrets and there were inconsistencies and there were things that didn't make sense. Then one day he leaves. I came home from work and I realised immediately that he'd gone. Vanishes without a trace. And the reason why these men disappear is so disturbing, it's led to a formal apology from the state. I never for a moment thought that it would be what it actually turned out to be. This is Bed of Lies, the true story of one of the biggest scandals in recent British history and the latest podcast from The Telegraph. Talk about the Stasi in East Germany. That's not how we understand our society. A tale that travels from the safety of a loving bedroom to the very heart of the law. Search for Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this. Now, we like to bring a range of guests to Planet Normal, and last week's visitor, the journalist and TV presenter Richard Maidley, of Richard and Judy fame, was a huge hit, and thanks for all your emails on that. I'm sure this week's guest will also really make you think. Over recent years, Matthew Goodwin's established himself as one of the UK's most thoughtful and articulate academics. A professor of politics at the University of Kent, Matthew wasn't even born when Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister in 1979, which ages (laughs) us, Alison. Ages us, oh my God. But his book, National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy, published by Pelican, is widely regarded as one of the most important books on British politics of the last decade. Now, Matthew wrote that book during 2015 and 2016, and I asked him why he wrote it. I think at that time, people were trying to understand how and why 
our politics is changing in the way that it is. So, so that book really took head on a number of myths that we had at the time about what was behind things like Trump and Marine Le Pen in France and Matteo Salvini in Italy, and to some extent Brexit, but as we all know in Britain, Brexit is not the same as those movements. And really what we argued is that we're in a fundamental new divide in politics that is much more about our values and identities and things like social class and income. And the unwritten laws of politics are being changed and the long-held loyalties that we have had are being overturned. And Boris Johnson, of course, benefited from that in realigning the Conservative Party electorate around this new base of support. And so many of the things that we pointed to in national populism continue around us today. I mean, the big thesis, isn't it, that the Conservative Party or the Republicans in the US, particularly under Trump, but not exclusively, have really connected with blue collar workers for the first time in a while. The Labour Party and the Democrats, their US equivalent, have managed to not sever their ties, but certainly disillusion some of their blue collar, lower income workers. Do you think we're at the end of that trend or do you think it will get even stronger? No, I think the things that have started to unfold around us will now only continue. What we've got in a lot of democracies today are voters who I call cross-pressured. They're conflicted. On the economy, they tend to lean a little bit to the left. They think the system is rigged. They think there's one law for the rich, another for the poor. But on these questions of culture and identity, which have surged up the agenda, they lean to the right. They want things like Brexit. They want the nation state to be upheld and respected. They want immigration to be reformed. They're open to it, but they they want it to be managed. They want sensible levels. And they're very suspicious of the tendency in many of our politicians today to send power up rather than send power down. And all of these things are reflected in the Conservative Party's electorate today. You can see the collapse of the Red Wall. And also you can see even this week, as we have this podcast, nearly one year on from Boris Johnson's election victory, the Conservatives, even today, hold a 10-point lead over the Labour Party among the working class. And so the realignment that we're seeing, I think, is is going to be with us for a long time, partly, Liam, I think, because many on the left still refuse to accept that this realignment is even taking place. So they continue to talk about politics as if the only thing that we care about is money and GDP, and the only thing that drives us is our own self-interest. Whereas I think some politicians have actually recognised that many people also care deeply about their community, they care deeply about their wider group, they care deeply about things like tradition, ways of life, sovereignty, all of these types of things, and they've readjusted their loyalties as as a result of that. Do you think the Conservatives can hang on to those red wall seats? We're seeing, you know, just this week how fragile Boris's majority is, even though it's 80 strong. But that 80 seat strong majority that he won in December 2019, as you say, rests almost entirely on seats that the Tories won often for the first time from Labour, whether it was in the Midlands, the North West or the North East. How vital is it that Boris holds on to those seats? And do you think he can in light of Covid? I think he can. I think the Boris Johnson team probably need to keep focused on the evidence and what it's telling us about British politics. Here's the reality of what's going on as I see it. 
Boris Johnson won the vast majority of those seats because he tapped into these conflicted voters. They want to see him level up. They want to see the bridges and the trains, but that is ultimately secondary. They want to see him stand up and speak for the country and to defend the country and sometimes to put the country first. If he maintains that formula, he will hold those seats. And Labour often forget this, Liam, but there are now about 30 to 40 Labour seats that are also up for grabs at the next election. So the Conservatives only actually demolished part of the red wall. There are a larger number of seats that could also fall to the Conservatives where those Labour majorities have been whittled down. So there are options for the Conservatives, I think, at the next election. But Johnson has to I think, reset his premiership and reconnect with what these voters are really wanting. He has to, I think, understand that on many of these so-called culture war questions, voters want to see the good, not the bad in British history. They want to see children being taught what Britain did right, not only what Britain did wrong. And they want to see a greater pushback against this more dogmatic public square that is cancelling anybody for saying something that is remotely difficult or controversial. And if he gets this right, Liam, here's the thing, he will almost certainly extend the Conservative period in office to the end of uh, the 2020s because of one simple fact, 60% of constituencies voted for Brexit. And the Brexit battle is is in the rearview mirror, but the point is 60% of those seats reflect the values that Boris Johnson should really be in touch with. And if he can maintain that coalition, he has a really big advantage over the Labour Party because many of those seats, the majority of those seats hold that outlook. And the Labour Party has not won the popular vote in England since 2001. It's an astonishing fact. It's an astonishing fact. So with Scotland gone for the Labour Party, their only way back to power is through the Midlands and the North. So if I was Boris Johnson's advisor, I would say, listen, at least every other week or so, give a speech from these seats. Be visible, be prominent. Understand that what people are asking for is not just a redistribution of economic resources, but a redistribution of status and respect. And for the first time in a long time, many of the communities that you're rightly pointing to feel as though they're in the conversation. And Johnson needs to really double down on a lot of that. And he will find, I think, that reset button that he needs to find. I'm a little bit apprehensive that some of his new advisors may not entirely understand the new electoral reality that's facing Britain. Whatever your personal views of Dominic Cummings, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, I think it's fair to say he did understand the landscape and how it was unfolding. And it will be interesting now to see where the Johnson premiership goes from here. So less about putting windmills on houses and more about building infrastructure and levelling up in the East Midlands and the North. But do you think he's made political mistakes during lockdown, Matthew? If we can put aside the health debate one side or the other, because clearly there is a huge amount of economic damage. That economic damage is falling disproportionately in those red wall seats rather than in prosperous southern seats where lots of people are doing their lawyering and their accountancy stuff from home. And also, a lot of those northern and midland seats are in tier three. I mean, I think absolutely. We already have evidence from the Office for National Statistics and other agencies that shows that 
people in London and the South are better able to work from home. They're more economically insulated. You know, they've had 30, 40 years of a South-facing economy that has also left their communities more resilient to the coronavirus crisis. So absolutely, Johnson needs to, to reset and to try and tilt the conversation back to those areas. But the reality is, as we go into 2021 and the vaccines arrive, and they will arrive, we are going to transition out of this crisis. And that will allow Johnson to get past the immediate question of crisis management and get back to the things that, you know, we forget this now, Liam, but the things that Rishi Sunak outlined at the budget at the beginning of this year, which is how we can invest in technical training, vocational education, how we can do more for coastal communities, for left-behind regions. And obviously, the crisis and the economic effect of the crisis has changed that conversation slightly. But when we talk about how we're going to change tax, how we're going to pay for the crisis, there is a political opportunity in there for Johnson to say, well, we're going to answer these questions in a way that is consistent with this adapted conservative philosophy that is going to listen more to the have-nots and a little bit less to the haves. And if he does that well, and there's no guarantee he will, but if he does that well, there is no reason why he can't stay in the high 30s in the polls as he's doing hovering around the high 30s and the 40s, which is a pretty good place to be, to be honest, after the last year. Is Farage still a threat? The space to the right of the Conservative Party is always going to be a threat to the Conservative Party because there are lots of voters who are looking for things that at times Boris Johnson has seemed hesitant to give them. The one prominent example of that was the summer protests and the toppling of statues and the intensifying culture war moments, the boarding up of Winston Churchill It was not just a periphery story for many people in the country. It was deeply symbolic. I think ultimately in his heart of hearts, Johnson is probably hesitant about getting involved in those kinds of things. Whereas many people in the country, particularly his new electorate, desperately wants him to make a stand for some of those things. Again, the idea that they don't want to just see the worst possible side of Britain. They want to see what the country has got right. They don't just want children to be taught about things like white privilege and critical race theory. They want children to be given a balanced education that is focused on what brings us together, not what pushes us apart. And if if he can tap into that, not in a divisive way, but in a unifying way, and get back to a culture of we rather than one of me, then I think actually he'll be rewarded very handsomely for doing so. And, you know, this is ultimately, I think, Liam, where we're going, which is, yes, it's popular on Twitter to say the culture wars don't matter and they're only represented by the extremes. And to some extent, that's true. But some of the issues that we are talking about are ultimately about who we are, how we interpret our history, how we interpret our values, how we see our country and ourselves. And people will want Johnson to articulate and present his own view of those so he can't duck these things forever he is going to at some point I think have to draw a line in the sand and and get involved the deadline for a Brexit deal is fast approaching do you think there will be a deal Matthew and if there isn't do you think that will politically damage Johnson particularly with these new traditionally Labour voters that he's managed to bring over or do you think they'll actually quite admire him for standing his ground. 
My instinct is there will be a deal. I think it will come late on after much political drama, but I think the legacy of the last few years or the lesson of the last few years is is that ultimately compromise will prevail. Either way, if it does or if it doesn't, I think the question of how will a disruptive break from the European Union, which inevitably there will be some disruption, whatever outcome we have, how will that impact on the assessments of levers? I think partisanship, our loyalty to political parties will kick in, and people will ultimately interpret any of that disruption through their existing loyalties. And if there is economic damage, they will blame the European Union or they will blame the distant corporate elites. They certainly won't associate that with their own voting decision. And in the same way, Remainers will view things very much through their own ideological prism, blaming Boris Johnson, blaming the Brexiteers. But underneath all of this is the reality is as those of us who you know read the evidence and so on know, is that most people did not vote for Brexit for economic reasons. And they were ultimately prepared to take an economic hit to get what they saw as being the greater prize that comes through leaving the European Union, a reassertion of national sovereignty, judicial independence, reform of migration, and ultimately the ability of the country to exert more influence over the decisions that affect our daily lives. And we still, I think, are grappling with the reality of what motivated that choice. We are still told over and over again that it was about GDP and economics and what happens if this region suffers this kind of knock from this local employer. And to a certain extent, those things will always matter. But the much broader view and the view that Johnson really does need to keep incredibly close to his premiership is this idea that Brexit Britain can be something else. And he's very good at projecting the positivity and the optimism. And once we come out of the crisis, however, you know, however fragile his premiership may look, however many rebellions in Parliament he may face, I do think that if Johnson can get back to that optimistic narrative about how to make the most out of Brexit, he will remain an incredibly popular figure for the groups in British society that matter to his coalition. The SNP are riding high in the opinion polls. I'm a proud Brit with no family connection to Scotland, but who would be incredibly sad if Scotland left the United Kingdom. Do you think it could happen? I think it's entirely plausible. If you look at the opinion polls at the moment, we now have clear majority support for a second referendum and we have clear majority support for independence. Now take the polls with a pinch of salt. I think a strong SNP performance next year, perhaps with a a messy end to the Conservative period in office, potentially opening the way to some kind of Labour SNP coalition of which the price is a second referendum in Scotland. All of that to me seems entirely possible and underlines, I think, the need to begin to cultivate and offer a counter-narrative to what is being offered by the Scottish nationalists and trying to explain to people why the union is important, why our shared values are important, and not to repeat the errors of the campaigns of the 2010s, which is to simply reduce life to this pursuit of money and this aversion of economic damage. There has to be a much broader, more compelling offer for keeping the union together next time around. And hopefully, you know, we'll see that come through. But to me, at least the 2020s look 
set to be almost as disruptive and turbulent as the 2010s. And how about the states? So if Trump is leaving the White House, what do you think is the legacy of Trump? Well, in one sense, Trump hasn't actually gone anywhere. And the 2020 election didn't really give us a definitive outcome. Trump may be leaving the White House. Trumpism, I think you can argue, is stronger than it was in 2016. Not only the 10 million extra votes, but the broadening of his base. And so ultimately, and I was talking with some Republicans last week about this, I think that ultimately 2024 and the nomination for that is Trump's. And anybody else who wants to go for it will inevitably have to ask for his his approval. So I don't think Trumpism has gone anywhere. And it's worth pointing out, and many people do miss this, that if you look at where Biden is going now and Bidenomics, on many of the economic questions that Biden answered and and offered to the American people, Biden adopted, I think, key elements of that economic protectionism. He didn't do the culture stuff, but he certainly try to talk about this revitalization of manufacturing and the Rust Belts. And again, leaning left on the economy, which was Trump's big, important move in 2016 while while holding right on culture. And incumbent presidents tend to struggle with midterm elections. And 2022 is already looking quite interesting for America. And 2024 arguably is looking even more interesting. So I don't think this election gives us any definitive resolution. It doesn't kill populism. It doesn't kill Trumpism. I think it leaves us, in a sense, where we were before, just with a different incumbent in the White House who will find himself very constrained. So National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy by Matthew Goodwin and Roger Eatwell is published by Pelican. And Matthew's upcoming book, This England, Nation, Identity and Belonging, will be published in 2021, also by Pelican. Alison, he's smart and brave. He's got his feet firmly planted in the real world. He's our kind of academic, but he does think that Boris can regain his popularity relatively quickly. Do you agree? Well, I was nodding so much, Liam. It was like one of those little dogs in the back windowsill of the Ford Cortina. (laughs) He is our kind of guy, isn't he? I agreed with so much that he said... Children being taught what Britain did right, not always what Britain did wrong. I think people are absolutely sick of that. What I do think is that there was a lot of disappointment from Boris supporters like me around the time of the Winston Churchill statue being boarded up. I feel he was timid and that people were longing for him to speak out. And I do think that President Macron has been better at articulating an idea of France than Boris has been articulating an idea of Britain. And I and I think he's going to have to up his game. The thing I disagree with Matthew about is I think there's going to be, we've talked about long COVID, I think there's going to be long lockdown, Liam. I think we're going to be dealing for the next few years with all the dire consequences of ignoring the economic and psychological effects of COVID. I think we're already starting to see in the news, there was a very good Channel 4 report this week about Families who back at the start of the year had been prospering, they're now selling their belongings, they're wondering if they can feed their kids next week. So I think this idea that Boris can, you know, with vaccine in one hand, triumphantly, you know, come out of the the wasteland and say, I have saved you all, and there be no hard feelings. I'm not as convinced about that. I would say that I've had 10 emails this week from Tory party members who say they have cancelled their membership. 
So I suspect that that's a little snapshot of a broader dismay and discontent with him in the country. What what do you think? I think you're probably right. I think that Boris is helped by the fact that in Starmer, he has somebody who is very managerial and very technocratic. Mm. I think the abstention this week was a mistake. Dreadful. Yeah. Uh, the ordinary working people definitely need a champion. And this long trend that Matthew refers to of the Conservatives slash the Republicans connecting with blue-collar voters and the Democrats slash Labour wanting to be loved by their metropolitan liberal friends rather than their working class supporters from way back will continue. But I do think indeed that the implications of lockdown will be with us for a very long time. And I think that will always be associated with Boris and his current top team. And it will be very, very difficult to shake that off. We've got to move to emails quickly. But before we do, I just wanted to say a couple of things off the back of Matthew's interview there. The Brexit deal, it's in the end, it's coming down to fishing. So many mainstream broadcasters sneer at fishing. They really don't understand how important it is to our coastal communities. And they say it's a small share of the population. Yes, that's because the industry has been utterly decimated since the early 1970s. I think the EU are being completely unreasonable trying to retain control over our natural resources. That's a kind of colonial relationship. We want the same deal as Norway, where we renegotiate every year in a fair and meaningful way. It cannot be right that two-thirds of the fish taken out of British waters are not taken Mm -hmm. by British boats. The other thing I want to say is on Trump. I think he's completely right that Trumpism did not lose that election. He got 10 million more Mm -hmm. votes. The -hmm. fact that even such an objectionable person as Trump manages to garner votes for his kind of policies and policies that now Biden is aping and imitating, as Matthew pointed out, shows that politics in the US has changed. I wish Trump would properly concede. I wish he would call off the dogs. I think there's a major danger now of proper civic unrest soon if Trump doesn't say to people, I lost the election fair and square. And Planet Normal listeners, they should get on the internet and they should watch a clip of a guy called Gabriel Sterling, who is a state of Georgia election official. He gave a quite incredible speech Mm. about why Trump is completely within its rights to track down votes that he feels he hasn't got. He's completely within his rights to go through the courts and continue to contest the election if he wants to. That is his right. But he must not condone violence and threats against ordinary election officials who are simply trying to do their jobs. I think what we're also looking for next year, Liam, is a bit more of the feminine side, a bit more empathy. Just to give you an example, I read earlier that the Anthony Joshua fight was going to have 2,000 spectators indoors. Can I remind Planet Normal listeners that weddings and funerals are still not allowed more than 15 people? So go figure. So on now to our fantastic reader emails, one of my favourite parts of the podcast. Please keep your emails coming to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Liam and I love reading them, learning about how you're all thinking and feeling, our wonderful fellow citizens of Planet Normal community. You know, Liam, that the government's got the SAGE Advisory Committee and Planet Normal's got the PN Advisory Committee. If only the Planet Normal Advisory Committee was running the country. So here's one that caught my eye. This is from Philip. 
Dear Liam and hospital bed correspondent, <laughs> see what you've done? That's what you are. <laughs> I used to be a top columnist. Now, dear Liam and hospital bed correspondent. In his Spectator article, Sir Simon Stevens claimed that there were now 15,000 patients with positive COVID tests in England's hospitals. The NHS public stats on beds published 12th of November showed only 10,994 positive COVID patients in England's hospitals. As far as I can see, all the trends have been down since then. So how did it get to 15,000 last week? Can your mole validate whether Sir Simon's claim is a straight lie or not? Well, George R. Mole would say that Sir Simon and others have a marvellous habit, Liam, of referring to England, but then sneakily including the figures for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So, Philip, I hope that answers your query. Unbelievable. Here's one from David. Matt Hancock's prognostication, I like that word, that by spring we'll be through this, reminds me of Ricky Gervais's David Brent's in that classic sitcom, The Office, telling his staff that redundancies are on the way, but don't worry, at least his job is safe. Hancock's sentiment will ring so very hollow for many of us still awaiting postponed NHS treatment, to say nothing of millions of private sector workers facing unemployment and countless self-employed too, plus small business owners seeing their life's work and savings disappear down the plug hole. These people are experiencing anything but a springtime thanks to the hysterical response to this virus of which Mr Hancock was in the vanguard. Very well said. And this is Charlotte. Just writing to say that Richard Madeley's words resonated with me and that those in journalism aren't the only ones feeling let down by their profession. I've been working in scientific research for almost a decade now, currently studying for my PhD in global health. I feel personally let down by the so-called science being peddled by Sage and their ilk, which has been continually proven to be confusing, misleading and downright wrong. I feel this is leading to an irreparable mistrust of science in the public eye, which as a young woman firmly embarked on her scientific career is heartbreaking to say the least. Thank you for keeping myself and many others sane. Keep up the crusade. Fellow astronauts, says Ian. I like that one. <laughs> I like that one. The official data shows that cases of COVID peaked as the November lockdown began. Three to four weeks later, death rates are also now falling. Both case and death figures contain a vast amount of spurious data, given the huge incidence of PCR false positives and the way COVID of, from, with, perhaps related to, is so often put on death certificates when it is clearly not the cause of death. Why does almost no one in the media make these clearly obvious points? The true figures of cases and COVID deaths are almost certainly far less serious than depicted on those government graphs. Well, we are trying to bring those things, aren't we, Planet Normal? We're trying to do those things. And this is from Nick, who is a former chairman of an NHS trust. I see that Michael Gove has resorted to fear tactics to try to keep MPs on side. They should not be fooled. What he conveniently forgets to mention is that bed occupancy in the NHS at this time of year is normally 95%. We're currently running at 85%. If there is a shortage of beds, that happens every year. It is not due to covid also, infection data in the last week shows a 25% reduction, indeed nearer 50% in some places like Bristol, now in tier three. The R rate is below one. Yet this data is being ignored. Why? We need our MPs of all parties to stand up against the tier nonsense. This is from Liz. Hi, Alison and Liam. 
My granddaughter went back to school on Monday after two weeks of isolation because one of her bubble tested positive. On Tuesday, she was sent home again for another two weeks. Is there any point in this? It's so difficult to motivate a teenager to make an effort after her GCSEs were cancelled and her A-level course doesn't seem to be able to start. Liz says she's a retired teacher who is ashamed of her profession. I love Planet Normal, she says. My weekly dose of sanity. Here's a cracking one from Eric. You'll like this one, Liam. As the MD of a UK business, I have loved Planet Normal, the one ray of sanity in a year where I feel myself drifting further and further from the UK that I once knew. This week, I cancelled my membership of the Conservative Party. My son did so too. And he has only just started to vote in this last election. The catalyst was that Michael Gove interview on the Today programme. His failure to explain why we are in these tears through deviation, repetition, etc. was like a Radio 4 comedy show. I didn't cancel my membership in a fit of pique, but after so many months when I realised that the Conservative Party has lost its way in dealing with the pandemic and that we have a bunch of career politicians so divorced from the real world, we need to drain the swamp. Right, one last thing, Alison, before we go, I've got a bone to pick with you because in your column (laughs) in The Telegraph this week, you say, I'm fuming, I'm fuming, you say that blokes don't do anything in the run-up to Christmas. (laughs) And I do. I've been writing cards. I've been up in the loft getting stuff down, you know, I've been arranging things, buying a few presents. Getting stuff down. (laughs) This is is the problem. It's like you write the Christmas cards. Who buys the Christmas? It'll be Mrs Halligan buying the Christmas cards, won't it? Lucy has indeed been doing a huge amount, more than me, as usual, I must admit. But I am doing something. I'm not doing nothing. The trouble is, if we try to help, then we're interfering. Yeah. But if we keep our distance, then we're not interested and we're lazy. I mean, we can't win. Yes, but I think it's one of the major acts in in history of gender discrimination, which is that they call him Father Christmas when we know that (laughs) Mother Christmas does all the bloody work. What we get here is Christmas Eve and we say, like, Oh, what have we got my sister for Christmas? <laughs> yes, said, have we forgotten the stilts? Have we forgotten? Yeah. <laughs> that yes. we. God, that they talk we. about the royal we. Yes, the, the domestic we is fun. The, the domestic we always means you, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, to, to, be, to be fair, who, who would be without the male at Christmas trying to put the lights on the tree? I mean, endless fun for all the family. Trying, <laughs> trying. I'm a perfectly competent lighter Put her on a tree. Does Lucy ever come in and say, nah, you need a bit more over there? And then you have to unwind them and start again. My lips are sealed. God, women are a nightmare, aren't we? The, the rage for perfection in the female, Liam, never underestimate it. Can't live with them. Can't live Can't without live them. without them. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's it. Before I get into huge trouble, that's it for our latest <laughs> voice to Planet Normal. Strap yourself in for re-entry. Keep your spacesuit handy for next Thursday because we'll be back with another blast off in our Rocket of Right Thinking, our capsule of common sense. Every Thursday at 11am, co-pilot Halligan and I chat to fellow Planet Normal citizens via the Telegraph website. Just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community. Click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section. We do try to respond to everybody between 11am and 12 noon. So please come and join us. You can read Alison in the Telegraph and online every Wednesday and me every Sunday, you lucky people. So stay safe, stay in touch with family and friends, stay in touch with us, and we'll be back with you next week. And as our beloved planet normal fades out of sight after our latest trip and Earth hoves into view, 
Thanks to our producers, Rhys Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampitz, and our editor, Theola Ludis. Until our next voyage, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 